All right, you can turn your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Working our way through the book of Romans. This is actually the 80th message we're, we're finishing up today. Romans chapter 8. And I want to read our text for us beginning in verse... Actually, I'm going to read from 31 down to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is uh, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was also raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things uh, to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, as we've been working our way through this text, uh, last week we looked at the last of five what we call unanswerable questions. The first one was, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Unless you're greater than God, the answer is no one. Um, Verse 32 was the second question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, God will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus, that we are sufficient in Christ. And then the third question In verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, Verse 34, fourth question, who is it that condemns? And then last week we began to look at verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, These questions are unanswerable because the answer is no one. Uh, Nobody can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Um, If you doubt me on that. We'll talk afterwards, but there's plenty of scripture to back this up. Um, I'm thinking of of in in Philippians where Paul writes in chapter 1 verse 6, he says, I am confident of this very thing that he who what? Began a good work in you will perfect it. There's no question there until the day of Christ. It's not that we're perfect now. We are in our standing before God, but we're not perfect in our practice, clearly, because we sin in a myriad of ways every day, every week. But that's why he says that we will, he will perfect that work. He will complete it. Uh, even over in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I know whom I have believed in, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. What do we entrust to God when we come to him for salvation? We entrust our soul to him. And he says, until that day. And even Jude 25, you hear this a lot of times, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, dominion, uh, majesty, and authority. And why does he say these things? He continues, he says, because he is able to keep you From what? From stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. I mean, if that doesn't get your blood moving, I don't know what will, that one day you will stand before God totally blameless. What a a wonderful place to be. And then you think of people that will stand before God filled with blame, filled with shame, and endure the wrath of God for all eternity in hell. What What a horrible horrible future that is laid out for those who have not come to Christ. And it's, it's so important that there's not a, a bunch of roads that leads there. I, was, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you believe him to be God, here's what he said. He said, I am what? The way, the truth. Okay, the life. No, no man comes to the Father but through me. That, that sounds a little ex, 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 exclusive, It sounds a little intolerant. (laughs) 
He's not saying, well, if you're good at, you know, you can follow whoever you want as long as you're a good person. He's not saying that. See, and that's what a lot of people unfortunately feel today. And we have people even within our churches today that would claim to be Christians, but they've never, ever really bowed their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. They think somehow they come to Jesus to, to have their felt needs met. And as a result of that, well, Jesus will, is supposed to make you happy and, and uh, you know, rich and, and healthy and all these things. And that's exactly the opposite of what God's Word says. I mean, we come to Jesus for one reason. Because He's the Savior. And the last time I checked, we needed one. I mean, basic bottom line. Okay, we need someone to save us from our sin. And that's not something that a lot of people want to hear today. And that's why it's so important as you consider this evangelism class that will take you through. The one thing this class does is it helps you ask people questions. You notice one thing in the New Testament, when Jesus ever encountered someone, he didn't always, you know, he didn't whip out a little piece of paper and say, hey, I have five little spiritual laws I want to share with you. He didn't do that. It depended on who he was talking to, how he dealt with that person. When he dealt with someone who was filled with pride and stuck in their sin and was just very arrogant, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, what did he do? He gave them the law. He laid down the law to them. Always. He didn't start off, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. No, he says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, he used certain terms to catch their attention because he knew how vital it was for them to understand that they were lost in their sin. And when he would come across someone who was broken, woman at the well, whoever, that, that was just broken in their sin, what did he do? He gave them grace. He gave them the message of of salvation. See, a lot of times we jump to the message of salvation and, and people, you know, uh, they're not broken yet. So they're looking at you like, what do I need this for? <laughs> you know, I live on a big house in the hill, drive a nice car, I got a great job and a wonderful family, and I think I'm a good person. I don't need your Savior. See? And they're willing to really sacrifice their own soul because they have a misunderstanding of what this world is all about over. The mere fact that they think that, hey, they got everything in order here on earth, when really they don't. But Scripture is filled with promises about our eternal salvation, something that's secure, that the Lord saves us. And when he does, we are saved forevermore. That's one thing we've learned here in this wonderful chapter. And nothing can revoke that security Absolutely nothing. And last week we began to look at verse 35, and he starts off there with the question, what shall separate us, or who shall separate us, from the love of Christ? And we looked at some of the adversaries. Um, He goes through a list there, tribulation, distress. We went through all those last week. But it's, it's so important that we understand that the reason these things can't stand against what God has done, it's because God is the one doing it. It's God who saves us. We don't save ourselves. You know, you hear people sometimes, you know, well, then I found Jesus, or I found God. You know, when they're giving their testimony, it's like, I didn't know God was lost, you know. I didn't know he needed to be found. I think you were the one that was lost, you know. And so the Bible points out very clearly all right, how that whole process works. And it talks there of the love of Christ in verse 35, and it refers not to our love for Christ, but for Christ's love for us. That's why nothing can come against it, because nothing is more supreme than God, than Christ. And so Paul was asking this question, what can make Christ stop loving you? Have you ever wondered that? What could you do to make Christ stop loving you? Exactly. The answer is nothing. Nothing. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, nothing can break that bond of love. Nothing. And the reason that's so true, 1 John 4.19 says, is that the only reason we love God is because what? He first loved us. 
See, God is the initiator in this deal. We're not. And if you get that backwards, boy, you're really working on shaky ground as far as your your theology when it comes to uh, salvation. It's really going to mess you up. If you think somehow that you know you're the one that initiates this deal, and and somehow that when 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 God put this whole plan into action, and the Bible says He chose us before the foundation of the world, well, some people say, well, what that means is that God looked down through the corridors of time and He saw that we were going to respond, and so because we responded, He chose us. No, that's not what that means. It's absolutely not what it means. It means basically that before we were ever even formed, God chose to set his love upon us divinely. We weren't even here. He couldn't look down and say, oh, you know, boy, look at, you know, that, that person can, can uh, really minister. That person can really do this or do that. You know, I, I need them on my team, you know. Boy, I hope they make that decision. No. Before we were ever even formed, God divinely set his love upon us. Look over at, at John 13, because, you know, when we, when we talk about the love of God, sometimes we, we fail to understand how powerful, how all-encompassing it really is. Um, in John chapter 13, Jesus is here having his, his meal, the, the feast of the Passover, um, with his disciples and he was getting ready to depart this world. It says, verse, verse, thir- uh, verse 1 of John 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having, look at what it says, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, what? To the end. It doesn't say he loved them based on their performance or he loved them based on how good they were or he loved them until his love ran out. No, it says that he loved them to the end. Now, this is a, a pretty amazing thing when you, when you think about this because he's sitting there at the table with the disciples and the next verse tells us that one of them was who? Judas. See, I think that, you know, we need to remind ourselves that as Christians, okay, as followers of Christ, we want to follow his example. We want to emulate Christ. And when Christ encountered sinners, he just didn't whip out a hammer and knock them over the head and say, hey, you're all going to hell. You know, stay away from me, you dirty people. No. As a matter of fact, he was, he was condemned because of his relationship with so many sinful people during his ministry time. He was willing to, to kind of break that barrier and go outside of what was comfortable for the religious people of Jesus' day and say, no, I'm going to have this guy over. I know he's a tax collector, but you know what? He needs to hear the truth. He, he needs to hear it from a loving, compassionate heart. He needs to know that God loves him. And even here, this situation with, with the disciples, and it's not just Judas who was not acting appropriately, okay, but the disciples themselves were, at this point, just being obnoxious, obnoxiously prideful. Um, At this point, Jesus is trying to share with them that he's going to, earlier on, he's going to have to come and, and you know, he's going to die. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going he's to give up his life. And, you know, in the text, the, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be next to Jesus in the kingdom. I mean, that's all they're concerned about. I mean, the whole idea that Jesus, their leader, was going to give up his life in a matter of days here, was irrelevant to them. <clears throat> they lit- it literally went over their heads. And they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And so, 
I guess my point is, is that don't think the disciples were <coughs> a group of guys sitting around this table with little, you know, halos around their heads, you know, all loving. And no, they were probably elbowing each other. Well, let me sit next to him. You know, let me, you know, they were, they were probably, they were filled with pride at this point. <coughs> my point is they weren't being lovable by any means. See, it's easy for us as believers to love people when they're lovable. But when people are not lovable, guess what? I don't feel like loving them. I don't feel like showing them love. I feel like showing them a lot of other things. (laughs) Anger. Frustration. Whatever it might be. See, but Jesus, it says he loved them to the end. That he was willing to put up with what he was seeing in their actions. And even though it wasn't honoring to God, I mean, to show you how bad they were at this point, I mean, they get this house, this room to have the the feast of the Passover in. And remember, I mean, they didn't have nice paved sidewalks and cars to get around in. I mean, you walked, and usually you walked in sandals, open, open sandals. And you were walking on dusty paths or roads, that were out there. And so by the time you got to somebody's house for dinner, which they did in this case, they all get there, it, it's customary to have a servant standing at the door. You basically take off your sandals and you have a bucket of water there and the servant washes your feet, dries them, and you go on in the house. Some people practice similar things. You know, you can win somebody's house, you take your shoes off. I mean, it's just it's kind of common sense. Um, well, that was something that was just, it was just, that was the normal thing to do. As a matter of fact, you know, it it would be like if if someone came over to your house to work on your car, they helped you with the car and you said, well, come on in and get some dinner. And their hands are filled with grease and grime. And they come in and they say, and you see, you know what, the washroom's right there. You can go wash up and, you know, get, oh, I'm good. And they just sit down on your nice white tablecloth with their greasy hands. And you're, what would you do? Oh, no, 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 it's right here. You can go, you know, you would think, what is wrong with this person? You know, that would just be odd behavior. Well, it's the same thing in this passage in John 13. So here they are sitting at the the table. There is no servant, (coughs) probably because it's a rented room. It wasn't their house. So they just rented this room for this dinner. So obviously they didn't pay enough and the servant didn't come with it or something. I don't know. But you would think that the, the disciples, at least one of them, would have the common sense, you know, to kind of get a pail of water and get some... No, nobody. They're too busy arguing and, and wondering who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand. So it says in verse 2, during the supper, when <coughs> the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, look at what he did. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I mean, you can imagine the disciples like, what's he doing? You know, I mean, it's not like they're sitting in chairs, okay? When, when you recline, when you ate in, in that kind of culture, you laid on the floor and you would recline. And you would kind of sit on your elbow and you'd eat with one hand kind of out of a bowl or whatever. But, you know, your feet are basically in somebody else's face. So, I mean, it would just be kind of rude. You know, I mean, you think you got these sweaty, dirty, gross feet and you're sitting down to eat. And the person's laying down and they're in your face. You know, you, you would want them cleaned up. And that's why culturally they always did this. Well, nobody did that. They were good enough just to sit down and, and it didn't even... It wasn't even on their radar screen. So he rose up. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And look, he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Nobody had a problem with this. (laughs) They were like, oh, this is good. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, 
What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, it's like a little spoiled brat. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. I won't allow it. You can see how they just forgot who they were dining with. You know, they, they, they just totally forgot. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, <coughs> you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Call Peter, pendulumic Peter, because at one point, you know, I'll never deny you, you know, or he's making these rash statements back and forth, back and forth. And so Jesus says, well, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. In other words, Peter, you know, you're missing the point here. But then he says, not every one of you is clean. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not all of you were clean. And when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you, look at what it says, an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so when you, when you stop and you, you think about what Jesus is teaching them, he's giving them an example of what? Of servanthood. Okay? And, and, and the, the point of me going there in John is to show you that the disciples were not acting in a loving manner toward Jesus. They were filled with pride and arrogance. And yet, that verse says that he still, still loved them. See, it's that kind of love that's going to get you through tribulation. It's that kind of love that's going to get you through distress. We talked about all these words last week. Tribulation is, is kind of an external pressure on your life. Distress is, is being put in a tight place. It comes from more of an internal situation. Persecution. Uh, refers to physical or mental suffering of those who reject Christ. None of that suffering can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Famine has the idea of going without food. Um, even if that were to happen, what a horrible way to die. But you know what? You still wouldn't be separated from the, the love of Christ. Nakedness is the idea of poverty, not just being without clothes, but being in poverty because you don't have any money, you don't have any clothes. Even that can't separate you. Or danger. It's, it's the idea of perilous things. The idea that enemies are always plotting against you. They're always trying to plot against you. He says, don't worry about that. That's not going to separate you either. And then the last term he uses there is sword. It refers to an assassin's dagger. I mean, would you be a little concerned if the police came to your house and said, hey, we have information that someone's trying to kill you. So just, just watch your back. I mean, you know, you might want to hire a guard. You, you might want to do something, right? I mean, because you'd be a little concerned. Well, as a Christian, trust me. You know, there's a mark on you. And we have to be aware of it, but at the same time, we don't have to be fearful of it. We have to realize that nothing is going to separate you. Even if the, even if the assassin gets to kill us, so what? We go to be with Christ. What a wonderful, glorious thing. Even imminent death can't separate us from the love of Christ if we've trusted him as our Lord and Savior. And that's when Paul, you know, he shares all those things because he went through all those things. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 27. He, he basically lays out how he endured all those things. But as you, So that was last week. Okay? Today, we're going to look at verse 36. It says, as it is written... For your sake we are being killed all day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from Psalm 44, verse 22. It's from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And adversity has been 
the lot of God's people from the very beginning. And, and you know what? When you have adversity, you need to understand that you're called to persevere through it, not try to escape out of it. Uh, and that's a big difference. Um, because as God's people, in that verse, it's, it's more Israel, but even as God's people, as the church, okay, it, it, it applies to us as well. Second Timothy verse three, verse, or chapter 3, verse 12 says this, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? Suffer persecution. It doesn't say, well, maybe... No, it says you will. You will suffer some form of persecution. And whenever I say that verse, I always have Christians come up and they always say, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't suffer any persecution. And I'll say, well, let's read the verse again. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you living godly? Are you living a life that is set apart from everything you see around you every day? Or are you just blending in? Are you just a Christian that comes on Sunday and kind of blends in and, and you know, the rest of the week you just kind of blend into the, the fabric of wherever you work or play or whatever. You go to school because, you know, you don't, want to, you don't want to stand out. Well, the Bible says you're going to stand out. The Bible calls us a peculiar people. It means set apart. It means it's something that just doesn't fit. And the reason we don't fit here is because this is not our home the last time I checked. Our home as Christians is where? It's in in glory. It's in heaven. This is just kind of a holding area. You know, this is this is kind of like you know, when you when you if you've ever gone on vacation and and your room wasn't ready. All right, they kind of put you in a holding area. They go down to the lobby and we have food and you know, whatever, if it's their fault, you know, they're real nice to you. You know, they want you to experience a, a good time. And even though you're not even at your destination yet, they, they want to help you out. They want to, it's a holding area. See, this is just a holding area for us. This isn't where we're going to live forever. And yet we live like we're going to be here for all eternity. I mean, we get so concerned about, I mean, silly things. Now, I believe we should be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But, I mean, you have to say that it's gone a little too far. I mean, I, I, I remember at the, the coffee shop one day, I was having a little thing and I had a, a plate. And it was just a donut on it, you know, the donut was gone or whatever. And a person came in and they ordered, I don't know what they ordered, something. And literally, he said, are you done with that plate? I'm like, excuse me? Well, you know, we want to preserve the, 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 the foliage, the trees, and, you know, we don't want to go to... I said, if you want the plate, take it. It's just a donut sitting on there. I mean, I didn't... Oh, that's, that's great, you know. But I thought, okay, there's something wrong there. You know, when you're, you're concerned about a tree, but... You'll slaughter unborn babies till the cows come home, and that doesn't matter. I mean, there's something that's backwards. Are you hearing me? It's just, there's something wrong. And, you know, Romans spells it out. I mean, we, we worship what? The creation, not the creator, right? And, and that's just all wrong. And so we live in an environment, we live in a society where that's just the norm. I mean, you know, you take a piece of paper and you crinkle up. Oh, are you going to throw that out? Because, you know, I can reuse that. I mean, I get it. Like I said, we should be good stewards, but let's not go too far. You know, I remember hearing uh, um, John MacArthur one time. He was preaching a sermon. He was talking about the whole environmental wackos out there that just, you know, just have carried it way too far. And he ended his sermon with something like this. He said, so you know what I say? Go out and walk on the grass and shoot a deer. Everybody's like, did he just say that? You know, and it was, it was shocking. But you know what? The idea is that, you know what? God provided this earth for us to enjoy. There's no need to, for us to protect it. It's going to burn up in a ball of flames, whether you protect it or not. Now, like I said, we should be good stewards. You know, if we got a car that's spewing, you know, toxic gas out the back and, you know, you can't even see. Well, that's one thing. But, you know, they, they've just gone way too far with this whole thing. And, and you can carry that down any, any road you want. But I guess what I'm saying is that 
please realize this is not our home. You know, I mean, today everybody's concerned about politics, politics. Who's going to be president? Oh, who's going to be the nominee? Who's going to, who cares? I mean, granted, we should do our, 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 our right thing and go to the polls and vote for whoever we feel God, you know, that, that meets the biblical standards according to what we feel and vote our conscience, whatever you want to say. We should vote. But it really doesn't matter in the end. You know, politics has absolutely nothing, zero, to do with the kingdom of God. Zero. It, it doesn't matter. And you know what? Next year, you know who's going to be president? Exactly who God wants to be president. Because the last time I checked, the Bible raises up leaders and he brings them down. So whether it's a Democrat, an independent, a Republican, a liberal, a conservative, it doesn't matter. Because this isn't our home. We're just here for a short time. Like a blink. Like a vapor that just, boom, we're just here for a short time. So don't get, don't get all worried. Don't get yourself in a little you know, crazy ball going, oh my gosh, you know, the sky's falling. Let it fall. If it falls on me, I'm going to glory. I really don't care. So we, we have to keep things in perspective. And that's what, that's what Paul here is saying. We have to be willing to persevere. Just because things are, the wheel are call, falling off the cart and, and, well, you know, I guess we won't just, you know, just wait till the Lord comes. But no. The Bible has given us commands to go out and share with the lost and dying world the gospel that has saved us. And we should be willing and faithful to do that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, All true believers will remain loyal to Christ. They will remain loyal to Christ. As a matter of fact, if they don't, then they weren't true believers. Did you ever see that verse, 1 John 2, 19? It's a great verse. Because it's, it's so important for us to understand this, because people say, well, I knew a friend that, you know, he, he came to Christ, and now he rejects Christ, and he's living with his boyfriend in Las Vegas, you know. Well, guess what? This verse is for your friend. First John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, meaning a believer, part of the body of Christ... If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. See, he makes a line of demarcation there. For you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. But what you have heard from the beginning abide in let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this, look at what it says, is the promise that he made to us temporary life. Oh, no, eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal life. So we will persevere. And so when we're talking about our salvation, when we're talking about being saved for all eternity, you know, some people say, well, you know, I believe once saved, always saved. I don't like that term. And that term, I don't like that term for a variety of reasons. Because it almost gives license to, well, I'm saved now. I can go do whatever I want. <laughs> I like more the term, you know what? No, you're going to persevere. You're going to persevere to the end. Why? Because God's at work in you. He's given you the very Holy Spirit to carry out what he wants you to do day by day. And so we will persevere. That's not a question mark. That's a period. Being a Christian is taking up your cross and following Jesus Christ. Cross is an instrument of death. That means you're dying daily to yourself. You're dying daily to what you want, and you're saying, God, is this what you want? See, that's really what it comes down to. Are we willing to do that? John chapter 8, verse 31, Christ said, If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. Hebrews 3.14 says, We are made partakers of Christ if we hold 
the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. See, there's, a, there's an idea of persevering there. You know, just because you came down some aisle and raised a hand and, you know, thought you were a believer and lived like the world the rest of your life, I'm sorry, you're not a believer. Because the last time I checked, a Christian is, is someone who follows Christ. That means they do what Christ would do. They live in a life of a way that's honoring to Christ. You're not perfect by any means. None of us are. But you're willing to persevere. You're willing to continue to do the right thing. You're willing to say, you know what? Even though I fell again, Lord, I'm back here confessing and I'm going to persevere through this. You're not going to let the devil beat you up every time you sin. And hold you down like he's got his, his heel on your neck. Because that's not reality. He doesn't. He's a defeated foe. He's powerful, but he's not as powerful as the God that holds you in his hand. And we have to be reminded about that. So verse 7, or verse 37, he goes on, he says, No, in all these things we are what? More, this is a great verse, more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. Not because you're who you are, but it's through him who loved us. See, he reminds us. Just, re, just, Paul's just, he just wants us to be reminded, hey, just remember, you, you know, it's not your love for Christ, it's his love for you that's holding you, that's giving you this victory. That word, more than conquerors, refers to an overwhelming victory. I mean, something is just, it's, you know, it's like you just blew the team away, you know. I mean, in basketball, it'd be, you know, 150 to nothing or something. I mean, it's just an overwhelming victory. There's no question mark. And see, with Christ's help, he's saying that we can triumph over every adverse circumstance that comes our way. And as we sang in the song this morning, the reason that is so so key to our understanding is because that adversity is not our enemy. That adversity literally comes from the hand of God. He allows that adversity in our lives. It increases our love for righteousness. It, it, it increases our hatred of sin. That's what that adversity does in our lives. It's kind of like sandpaper. You know, you take sandpaper and, and you start sanding a piece of wood. You know, maybe that piece of wood's got paint and all this crud on it. And, and you start sanding and it takes a lot of work. And you know, and you, you literally have pieces of the wood and really fine particles all over when you're done. It's a mess, but that, that piece of wood is smooth. It's, it's, man, it's refined. It's, it's sanded. There's no big bumps in it and hunks of paint here and there. You, you've taken time. And, and see, that's what God does with us. And we need to understand that because if we don't, every time something comes against us, we throw our, oh, man, I need prayer, man. It's, everything's falling apart. Well, wait a minute. Do you ever think maybe God's allowing things to fall apart? Because he, he wants you to grow. He wants you to feel a little adversity so that you can become more like his son. See, we we see not only our hatred of sin when we come into, it increases our hatred of sin and our love for righteousness, but we really see our inadequacy. Our inadequacy. See, that's the problem with the health and wealth folks, you know. They're on TV preaching all this mumbo-jumbo about, you know, name it and claim it. God doesn't want you to be poor and God doesn't want you... Well, they're all lies. You know, and then they go to their own little doctor secretly and, you know... Or or sometimes you see them once in a while, you know, the camera will be off them. They think it's off them and they'll have their spectacles on. And then the camera's on, you know, you know... Well, why don't you just, you know, if, if they're in the business of healing people, why don't they just go be healed sight? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a sham. It's not that God doesn't heal, okay? But, I mean, to, to believe that these charlatans are actually doing what they say they do, they don't even live up to the standard that they're holding out there for everybody else. You know, as they fly around in their Lear jets and their multi-million dollar homes and taking the last dollars from some poor widow somewhere, saying, hey, just sow your seed, and God will bless that. that that's, that's just wrong. So we, we need to be understanding of that. And we need to see that, you know what? Sometimes we live in adversity because God wants to show us that we're inadequate in and of ourselves. But Christ is all-sufficient. So whenever we face our inadequacy, where do we go? We go to our all-sufficient Christ. 
We don't try to, you know, come to grips with it and, and work it through. And No, we take it to Christ. And we say, God, you know what? I got this problem. I don't know what to do. But I know you do. And maybe the problem won't go away, but maybe he'll give you the wisdom and the ability to persevere through the problem to help you become more what he wants you to be. That's why in verse 28, we can be confident that all things work together for him, for us, for them that love God, and to them that are called according to his purpose. See, adversity works for us a far more exceedingly eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says. And that refining process makes us recipients of an incredible reward one day in heaven. But God will give us the grace through his spirit, through his word, through his people, okay, to work through it. And that's, that's the other thing. I mean, just to touch on a practical thing. The, the church is a funny, it's a funny organism. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to function one way, but so many times it functions the exact opposite. You know, there, there's people within our church, and maybe they're going through just hard times, difficult times. Whatever it might be, just put the label on it. But see, you have to understand the body of Christ is here for you when you're going through difficult times. You know, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not all right to come here on Sunday. And, How you doing, brother? Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And you just lost your job, and you've been diagnosed with cancer, and your marriage is about ready to fall apart. I mean, why? Why would we answer that way? Pride. We've all done it. See, God wants us to be a a body that's transparent with one another. Because then when we're transparent with one another, when we come together and say, you know, man, I'm really struggling in this area. Well, you know what? So-and-so just came out of a real struggle with that. Let me hook the two of you up. You know, or, or maybe it's a sister in the Lord and she's dealing with something. And you know of another sister in the Lord that's dealt with that. But if there's no transparency, you, you can never make those connections because everybody's hiding behind a mask. See, we're all in process. And that refining process is something that God will continue. And we're able to have that victory in Christ. See, you have to understand many of the believers in Rome that, that Paul was writing here in, in the book of Romans to they began to wonder about their own salvation. Um, Because when the church began to become persecuted, what happened? Not everybody hung around. A lot of people left. So they started thinking, wow, okay, maybe, maybe the salvation can be lost. Maybe this isn't the real deal. And so they thought maybe, maybe persecution you know, it's something that just God can't deal with. and No. See, persecution should draw the true believer closer to Christ. Not further away. Well, the last thing here, confidence in verse 38 to 39. Incredible verse. And he rattles off this, these things here. And he, he says, basically, I am persuaded... Uh, the idea of, you know what, there's no doubting this. I am totally confident. I'll sign on the dotted line about this. It's a, it's a declaration. It's a settled conclusion. He's not saying, well, maybe, you know, I think uh, uh, maybe death. You know, he's saying absolutely not. Uh, Paul expresses the same kind of confidence in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. When he says this, I know whom I've believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed onto him. There's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind. And see, our confidence has to be the same as Paul's here. We have to have that confidence. Can you imagine if if you could go to bed every night having that kind of confidence that nothing ever is able to separate you from the love of God which you have in Christ Jesus? I mean, you know, you you could list anything you want. But as long as you're secure in Christ, and he starts off, even even death, right? He says, for I'm sure that neither death, death can't separate us from love, love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Psalm 116, verse 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I mean, we're all going to die pending the Lord's return. There's no fountain of youth. There's no, you know, it cracks me up. Some people, you know, they try to, <laughs> they try everything they can, you know. 
And some of them do a pretty good job. You know, some of these movie stars and stuff, you look at them and they're like, wow, they're 85, really? You know, but then you see them maybe in a different light or without their makeup, it's like, oh, they do look 85, you know? It's kind of scary. But, I mean, they got, they're pampering themselves. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to keep themselves young looking. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of ourselves. We should. But on the other hand, you're not going to put off death. One day, we will die. One day, there will be people standing in a funeral home over your casket or whatever, have a memorial in your name, remembering who you were. And you will not be here anymore. Your heart will have stopped. Your lungs will stop breathing. You would be dead. And the question to ask is, are you ready for that date with death? Because it's coming. And if you're in Christ, hey, bring it on. (laughs) I'll be in glory. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse shared this illustration, and and it was such a a good illustration. Um, he He was a minister at the time, and his wife died. And he had young children, and he was trying to figure out a way to explain the whole idea that, you know, uh, of their mother dying. And it says that he was driving home from the funeral, and a, a truck, a big truck passed his car, and it cast a shadow over the, over the car. And he asked his children, would you rather be run over by a truck or by the shadow of a truck. And they answered the shadow because it doesn't hurt you. And he went on and he says, well, mommy went through the valley of the shadow of death. See, there's no pain there. And see, that's what we need to be aware of. Instead of separating us from Christ, death will bring us into his presence. And it's something that we can look forward to. But he even says here, life and we say, well, how, how could, what, what's he thinking here? He's saying, you know what, as we live our lives, there's a lot of dangers, there's a lot of difficulties, there's a lot of temptations, troubles, everything, all around us. None of that, none of that. Even as we live our lives, we're secure in Christ. He says we're secure against angels, the next thing there. He's probably making a reference to good angels. Galatians 1.8 says, Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you that we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. See, a good angel can't separate us from God's love. Or even principalities, powers, demons. We're secure against them. So you have both the good and the fallen angels in the New Testament. Neither one can separate us from God's love. They don't have the power, the, the, the dunamis, the might, the, the dynamite there to make that happen. They're powerful beings, but they're not more powerful than God. We are securely for both time and eternity. He says things present, things future. doesn't matter where you're at in the time frame. He's saying nothing, absolutely nothing in this age or future ages, all of eternity, we will ever be able to separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus. And then basically, he talks about the, the, the heavens. He's, he says height um, and depth, they're basically astronomical terms. And it refers to the location of a, a star when he says height at the zenith, zenith of, its, of its arc and everything. And then the depth is is a a word basically that that means the opposite. And he's saying nothing, even in all the celestial realm, will be able to separate it. And then he says, if you're having any doubt in what I'm trying to get across to you, he says, nor anything else. He just kind of says, just to let you know, nothing, absolutely nothing, lists a bunch of stuff, and then anything else in all creation will ever separate us from God's love. He, He allowed no loopholes, He allowed no exceptions. And that includes even the believer, by by the way. I've heard, talk to people about the security of this stuff. Well, well, what if I reject God? (laughs) So what? What do you mean? If If you're a believer, if you're truly saved, that's not something you'll do. But I have talked to Christians who were legitimately saved, who for a period of time, bitter, whatever, got off on the wrong road and, and definitely 
turned their back on God. But I know that God didn't turn his back on them because they came back around. See, even a believer can't separate himself from God's love. And that's a, a glorious, glorious truth that we need to be reminded of. And it means that the Father and the Son's love are inseparable. That's why he says the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ said it this way in John 17. He says, I and them and, and them and me and, and that they may be made perfect in one <clears throat> in that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. If you have loved me, Father, I will... I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, and that they may behold my glory, which you have given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ prayed that his disciples might be with him in heaven, because God hears and answers that prayer. Our salvation is and forever will be eternally secure. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for our time this morning in your word. Lord, we pray that we might remind ourselves that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. But Lord, while we're here, we have lots of work to do. And Lord, uh, just to prepare ourselves as we go out into this lost and dying world to share the the grace-filled, love-filled, wonderful message of the gospel that Jesus saves. And that, Lord, that message is still relevant today. And, and, Lord, we know that you can work that salvation still in the hearts of people because people are still being saved each and every day. And, Father, we pray that we'd be faithful to do our part in that process. What a wonderful thing it is that you've entrusted to us the glorious gospel of Christ, not only to live but to, to proclaim it and to see how you can change lives for all eternity. Lord, what a wonderful thing to be part of. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, enable us as we, we depart from this place here this morning to remind ourselves that we're not called to go out of here and judge those who haven't come to Christ or, or condemn people, but we're called to love them. And uh, we need to reach out to them with the love of Christ and see what you're going to do. We thank you and we praise you. Bless our fellowship time over in the other building as well. In Jesus' name, amen.